the only way we're going to really save science from being so shit right now is if we create more spaces and more funding vehicles for more anarchy. All right, what's up, everybody? This is Other Life. I am Justin Murphy. I just wanted to let you know that I write a free newsletter to thousands of people every week. It's where I publish my best work. I share events that you can come to and much more. We have an insane private community around the newsletter and it's free. Go check it out. Just go to otherlife.co. That's otherlife.co. When you subscribe, I'm going to send you a folder of PDFs that contain all of my personal highlights from a bunch of my favorite books that I've read over the years. So you'll get a million insights after just a few minutes of browsing these PDFs, really. They're really special to me, and I just figured I'd share them with you all. So that's otherlife.co, otherlife.co. All right, Riva. So I think a lot of people in my audience will know a thing or two about you, at least vaguely. It seems like you've had a lot of success in different domains. You've run your own business. You've had important positions at other big businesses. It seems like you're uniquely talented at being able to just go from one thing to the next. You also run your mouth like crazy and seem to get away with it. Is there something unique that you think or do that has allowed you to have this kind of wild uh, career and yet still be successful? Well, I think first we have to define successful because lots of things I've worked on have not worked. Right? Like, actually, if I look back at my career, the most successful thing I ever did was build a children's toy shop. And that's not the thing that I'm the most well known for. But if I look back with hindsight now, that was the one that really um, I think potentially brought the most value to the world. Um, but yeah, no, I've definitely jumped around. Like I went into tech and startups and venture capital and I went to work at Intel. And then, you know, now I'm thinking about neuroscience and um, yeah, people do ask me that a lot. Well, they also just try and figure out if I'm a spy. Cause I just like, how do you jump around all these different places? You must be an intelligence agent. And I'm always been offended by that. Cause I'm like the people who actually read my text messages who could employ me to be a spy must know that I'm not smart enough because no one's ever actually asked me to be a spy. Um, but no, I think, well, I wrote about this once, but like imagine having one life and just doing like one thing. Like, it's just so insane to me like this. I always wanted to do so many different things and I could never imagine having one career that lasts, lasts my entire life. I have so many interests. And I think the, one of the ways I've been able to jump around is, and I've, I've said this before is like what I think is the most um, beneficial kind of networking and business strategy is, it's literally just having integrity. It's like, if I go into something, say I want to go into venture capital or I want to go into, uh, you know, work at Intel or, you know, get hired by Jim Keller or any of these things. Like I'm, I try to be very honest about what I know and what I don't know. I think it's very valuable. It's not like I'm going into semiconductors thinking that I have like a extensive background in silicon engineering. Um, but I have like a passion to learn and I like know what my skill sets are. So when I find a new interest, like for instance, now with this neuroscience stuff, like I'm not going to be the person doing the research, but I understand my skills and catalyzing the research that I find. Um, so just being aware of my own skill set and then just being really curious, like asking good questions. Um, people who are experts in fields like like it when you go out and like you've done some research into that area and then you ask some good valid questions. And I think that's kind of like if you look at what Elon Musk has done with his career, like he's jumped into all these different spaces and he kind of in my idea, like he figures out the mechanics of a space, right? And then he figures out these kind of catalyst leverage points where he can go use his skill set to do something with it. And on a very like much, much shitter level, I'm like trying to do the same. But I mean, just for context, half the stuff I've done is like failed. <laughs> so, Interesting. So if you learn, you learn, you learn, you know? You know, it looks like your your life has been successful. It seems like you have money. Uh, it seems like you're doing quite well. So if, if a lot of things you do fail, how do you manage to do well anyway? Well, it matters how you think about failure. Like, I don't think about failure as like, oh no, it's bad. I think of 
failure is like a data point for you to improve your model in the world to know how to advance next. Like I set up a venture capital fund, or I try to like 24. It was so, I was so ridiculously naive. Um, and you know, I had such gumption. I was like, I'm going to raise a $50 million venture fund to invest in AI startups uh, to accelerate science. And um, I look back at it now and my model was just off of the world, right? And then afterwards, when things didn't work out the way I wanted it to, I learned a lot of things. And then I incorporated that into my next stuff. So I was like, okay, well, I now know that I never want to manage other people's money. So if I have to manage other people's money, it's actually, that's like your main role as a venture capitalist is not what I want to do. I want to deliver capital to projects that I care about. So I learned, I was like, okay, well, I actually don't want to work in venture capital. I'd rather make money separately and make angel investments. So the failure of my venture fund wasn't like a, it wasn't like a, you know, huge barrier in my life. It was just, uh, it, I, I used that as a, as a, as a thing to just learn from. Um, okay. Gotcha. And so you, so you, so you go to someone like Jim Keller at Intel and you're like, Hey, I want to get a job. Hire me. Uh, what does that pitch look like? That's definitely not what happened. I was never like, I want to go work at Intel. Jim Keller is a genius and one of the, like the best mentor I've ever had in my entire life. Um, he's one of my favorite people in the whole wide world. And when he was leaving Tesla, I met him through my venture fund when he was leaving Tesla to go work at Intel. He said, why don't you come work? And I was like, what am I going to do at Intel? Like I'll get fired. <laughs> right. And he made a bet with me that if I lasted more than three months, he reckoned I'd be CEO in like two years. So on my three month anniversary, I was like, damn, I guess you work for me now. Um, but I got seven, 17 HR complaints in 18 months. Like I'm like not used for the corporate life. Um, but <laughs> I, the reason why I went to go work at Intel was I was like, one, I am interested in, in silicon engineering, but two, I was like, I'll learn a lot from Jim, right? Like how to manage a team. It's 11,000, employees with like a several billion dollar annual budget to have that experience working directly under someone that I respect that much is not something I would ever turn down. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, that, that's how I ended up, I ended up doing that. I I wanted the opportunity opportunity to learn. But if your experience was mostly running a toy store and having a failed uh, venture capital firm, what, how, how do you make yourself seem like viable for that? Well, I guess we have to ask him that, but, uh, no, when uh, the first time I met Jim, he was uh, the head of hardware at Tesla and I was doing my venture fund and I came and um, we just started chatting and then we just got on. Like he's such a broad generalist. He's very philosophical and we had all these cross interests and the way that his mind works and my mind works, like it would like, push each other in the right way to think about things. And, um, you know, I've, I've had a bunch of people in my life just like recognize some skills. I think I've spent a lot of my time thinking about epistemology. So I try and think about how I formulate my beliefs and my arguments. And if you think about thinking a lot, I think that other people who think about thinking a lot recognize that, right? So Jim's like, it doesn't matter that you don't have all the semiconductor knowledge, right? We're going to put you a strategy in the silicon engineering team. The fact that you don't have the biases of the industry is probably extremely valuable because you'll come in and maybe you'll spot stuff and, and see things. So it's more about that. So the way that I think that like people that have you know, bonded with me or helped me with my career. It's, it's the, it's, it's people who think, think a lot about thinking. Um, and then when I was at Intel, like I didn't sit and work on silicon engine engineering designs. It's a, you know, at a team that big, it's a lot of like politics and strategy and trying to figure out how to make things work. Um, and yeah, it's just like trying to find random leverage points to, uh, you know, accelerate silicon engineering design. And like, and, you know, I do have some technical knowledge from like being involved in the AI space for a while. So it was cool to bring that over. Um, but I remember my first day at Intel because Jim just sent me to like a silicon design workshop. And, like I had no idea what was going on. And I thought, oh no, he thinks I like know all this stuff. <laughs> and then after 
laughed and he thought he thought I just wanted to throw you in. I was like, no, I actually loved it. <laughs> it okay, so nice, nice. I love it. So basically, have integrity and think a lot about thinking. And if yeah. you, if you can really just be a really smart, reflective person with high integrity, you can kind of get yourself into all kinds of big positions. Even if you fail a lot, that doesn't really matter. Yeah, I actually really value people who failed in the past because, like, if you haven't failed on some things that you've done. I mean, my venture fund was like, I had such a plan, right? I was going to do this venture fund, use it to invest in AI to accelerate scientific discovery, then accelerate science, which accelerate my own lifespan. Like I had this whole plan. And when it didn't work, it's like, it's like good, right? Because I learned my own naivete on like that my moral of the world was just so shallow. And you understand the complexities of like how industries actually really work. And when you get to that, when you understand how complex systems are, it's going to make you better in uh, like uh, doing everything else. I know that you're a big fan of the philosopher of science, uh, Feyerabend. Recently at a party, you gave a copy of uh, his book Against Method to everyone yeah. at the party. I would love to learn what was the most important lesson you, you learned from Feyerabend. So I read, um, I've been interested in uh, uh, like how to accelerate science for, for like a long time. And that was the purpose of our venture fund when I originally set it up, is that we wanted to invest in AI to accelerate research and discovery. Um, so like cloud labs and stuff like this. But uh, I read Fire, and I did do some of this at university because I did do philosophy of science as part of my philosophy degree. And I read Fire Arvin then. But it's like, there are some books where you have to read books at the right time. So I read it at the time. It didn't have a huge effect on me. I read it again a few years ago. I think like 2019, I tweeted about it. And I was like, wow, this, one of the things I love is that my, I've, I've gone through this kind of a uh, 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 flow of, of my trying to understand where the problems are in, in like why science isn't, doesn't, doesn't at least seem to be as interesting as it was in the early 20 or in, you know, at least like 50, 60 years ago is that I, I my naivete when I started my venture fund was that I thought that the, the block to scientific progress was actually funding. I was like, if I just get more money to projects. And I remember Peter Thiel saying to me once, if there were lots of cool projects, I would just be funding them. And I was like, he's just cynical. There's going to be loads. But like, no, he had a point, right? <laughs> they, they, didn't, they didn't exist, right? And then I'm like, okay, well, what actually is the problem? And then if you go look at scientific research, which is the thing that Fair Arben points out, it's so linear, right? It's like you scientific has to like scientific research, especially in academia, has to like plod along from like the last stage. Like if you look at like the Cunian structure of, of science, it's like you have these different stage, stages of scientific research. And like it's meant to follow on. And the way that universities are set up is like you get a PhD, you follow up from your peers, you're meant to advance on their discoveries. But if you look at the really amazing like paradigm shifts in science, like Galileo couldn't have been peer-reviewed, right? <laughs> it's ridiculous. Um, and the, the real shifts in science have come from like anarchism, right? From someone who's gone, there is this dogmatic view, this is dogmatic assumption of how the world works. And we've got this new point that makes it, it's not going to fit into the previous paradigm. And Fair Arben's saying that we need more epistemological anarchism in science, because if you look at the greatest achievements in science, they have come from people who've kind of refuted the current paradigm. And, um, and I think we've really come to like a head. I think one of the reasons why it was so good for me, and it was actually Jim who told me to read Fair Arben again, like six months ago. And we organized the event where we gave everyone the copies of that book. But he told me to read it again, because I think during COVID, I definitely went even, I, I became even more skeptical about the belief, like the, like the epistemology of science. Right. And then I reread Fair Arben and I was like, it's so true. Like we have people just subscribing to dogma all the time. 
So one of the things that's so great about Fair Up, and I, I recommend anyone to read it because it's not just about science. It's like, how do you have breakthrough thoughts? You have to just allow for anarchy in your mind, like allow for that space. And he gives examples. And one of them I do all the time, which is if you're trying to build an assumption or something or build an argument, just to force yourself to bring in something that's completely surreal. So if you're trying to like build a model of physics, like bring in something like you say to yourself, your argument has to also fit into like parapsychology or like psychic energy or like Scientology or something. Just so it forces you to think differently because it puts you in a different mindset. Um, so yeah, it's just a really valuable book. And I think the only way we're going to really save science from being so shit right now is if we create more spaces and more funding vehicles for people to have to be more, you know, for more anarchy, basically. Love it. Love it. Yeah, totally. So I want to ask you about something specific. Uh, Feyerabend once wrote that major scientific discoveries are not like the discovery of America, where the general nature of the discovered object is already known. Rather, they are like recognizing that one has been dreaming. And if this is true, what commonly held belief, I'm asking you, is really just a false dream that we're going to wake up from soon? Oh, I mean, I have a lot, but one that I'm, one, my, one of my biggest uh, kind of changes of something that I used to believe that I've, uh, yeah, I've really updated on now is um, I don't think the brain produces consciousness. Like, it's just so ridiculous. I think that, you know, and, I, and I, it's not like I have a firm model. Like, lots of people have lots of different arguments, but my current working view is that, you know, it's more like the brain is more like an antenna and that there is a lot, like there is a lot like outside this consciousness. Like it's just people, it blows people's minds. If you tell them that all observable reality is less than 5% of what's in the universe. And like the rest of it is like the supposed like dark energy and dark matter. Like we don't have any idea. The idea that we can be arrogant in science is so insane. It's like the brain, the brain produces consciousness and the neurons. I'm just like, where? Like this makes no sense. Um, and yeah, and then like, and like the psychic, like some of the, the psychic phenomenon, I used to think this stuff was bullshit. And one of the reasons why I think this stuff was bullshit in the past is because it gets wrapped under like, this, like a lot of spirituality stuff, which I don't like. Cause I think it's like, I don't, I'm not into this like stoicism, like let's make ourselves like weak and all this stuff. So like, I've, I've like kind of avoided all this, all, the, all of these things. But for instance, I'm reading right now, Ben Gertzel, who's actually a great AI, well, big AI engineer. Um, he wrote a book called Empirical Evidence for Psy. And if you look at the psychic experiments, they're more statistically significant than a lot of the stuff that we take for assumptions. For instance, people take aspirin to reduce uh, you know, the risk of heart disease. The psychic, like if you do look at Gansfield experiments, all this stuff, they're, they're, more, they're more statistically significant that there's evidence that this stuff works than like aspirin for heart disease, right? But it's so outside of people's uh, scope of thoughts because we name it things like parapsychology, which means outside of normal psychology. I'm like, right. what the fuck is normal psychology? Normal psychology is like made up belief narratives, right? So that's my, I think, I, I think one of the biggest shifts will come. It's also, you know, why I'm skeptical about AI, why I'm skeptical about neuroscience is that we are the fundamental way that we think about consciousness seems to me to be com completely incorrect. Okay. Fascinating. So you think the brain might just be an antenna. That's not the location of consciousness. And you also no. think that these fields that are sometimes denigrated with less than flattering term, you know, terms and descriptors like parapsychology, you think there's, there's more there than uh, most people would suspect. Yeah. And you know, what's insane is that once you start, I mean, this sounds like a catch 22 because people say, well, if you believe it, then you'll see it. Right. But once you start getting into the mindset and also like understanding the power of your mind, like, I don't know, like it's like, cool. It's, I've seen people do incredible things. And I actually, you know, people say like, if, if this stuff was real, if people really could have these psychic skills or, you know, have this ability to do things, why aren't they doing more powerful things? 
And the more I meet more powerful people, the more I realize they have these skills. They just don't tell people. <laughs> okay. Fascinating. Well, there, this is now kind of a popular meme in certain circles, ideas around, you know, esoteric things and uh, the occult and uh, this kind of stuff, actually, although it's, it's still kind of low status in high education, kind of scientific circles. The, if, you, if you look at the masses on the internet, there's huge, huge communities of people interested in things like magic and black magic. And it, it gets pretty wild, actually. So it, it sounds like you actually put some possible credence on the fact that maybe really powerful people out there are actually engaging in magic. Or how do you think about it? What would you call it? I, I just think they, they know how to do things with their minds that other people, they're more aware of how powerful the mind is. Like if you think about the, like the last hundred years of psychology, we've kind of reduced the mind to be this like the, the way we've made, the, we were so materialist now that we've separated the mind from physics, right? Like there's physics and there's like our minds, like somehow they don't interlink, right? And the way I think about physics now is that, um, you know, who knows what this like dark energy, dark matter is. Like, I think a lot of it might be that it's you know, somewhat to do with this word consciousness, which I think will eventually disappear when we have better models for these things. But if you think about like quantum physics, right? If you observe things and things can change and it's like there's already a lot of evidence that minds can change physical reality. And I think the people who are very tapped into that, they understand a lot of about the power of intention. And when I used to hear about this stuff when I was younger, I was like, nah, it's so stupid. Like, you obviously can't do this because science has been so reductionist in the last hundred years. And then when you start to do it yourself, right? Um, like I've just seen, like, even in my own anecdotal experience, I've been able to do like insane things in the last year, just having being more aware of how my mind can interact with physical reality. Whoa. Okay. So and I'm not saying like Matilda thing. What's, what's an example? <laughs> okay. I'll give you, I'll give you one. My cousin died a year ago. And on the night when he was, he died, I, I woke up in like 3am and I had a panic attack. Like I don't have panic attacks. I'm not a very anxious person. And I, my heart was like, I was like having this insane palpitations. And I texted my friend and I was like, I'm having like a heart attack. Um, and she was like, just calm down. Like, you'll be fine. And the next morning I woke up and I was like, <laughs> your cousin has died from a heart attack. Right. And I was like, okay, that's strange. But I kind of put that to one side. Two weeks ago, same thing happened to me. I was in a friend's house and I couldn't sleep. I was like convulsing. And I was just thinking to myself, someone, someone I know I love is dying right now. I could just tell. And I woke up in the morning and my cousin texted me saying, your aunt died of a heart attack last night. And you know, when people say this stuff, you know, they get, they like have these premonitions or they have it. It's like, it makes sense to me now that there's, I think of like consciousness more of like an intention network where there are all ways in which people are connected. Um, so like those two things are examples to me and they've been very harrowing. I've only had two panic attacks in the last two years and they've both been with people in my family have had heart attacks, right? Wow. So that's one. Another thing is, um, you know, simple things like setting intention. Like my, my, my friend, Jesse, who we're talking about, who has, who has that podcast American alchemy, his, aunt is a, is a therapist. She said to me like, yo, you should mood board. And I was like, what am I like a, an old lady on Pinterest? Like I'm not like a mood boarder. And I made a mood board randomly last summer and I put some thought into it. And then I looked at it again, like a month ago and it is insane. It is insane <laughs> how much of the things that I put in the mood board, like really specific details became real. Like it's so strange. Huh. I believe a lot in intention now. I'm only starting to under, undercover, but like some of the people who run the biggest, most successful hedge funds that I know, I mean, they, they really harness the power of intention. Wow. Not rich. So, that's fascinating. Those are really interesting examples. Well, I might have to build yeah. a startup all about, you know, uh, harnessing mental power to change physics and you can lead the seed round maybe. Yeah. I mean, actually, I ironically have just invested in, in a group that's doing that. <laughs> okay, cool. I'll look out for that. Maybe we talk a little bit about crypto. Obviously, really interesting and important at the moment. Uh, there was a recent essay that you wrote that seemed to suggest that 
Perhaps the blockchain revolution might just end up with former Obama interns pacifying the population with UBI tokens. I'm curious, is that your mental model of how crypto unfolds or is crypto possibly going to be this kind of massive tsunami tsunami that kind of overthrows the entire fraudulent boomer elite and liberates life as we know it? Well, they can only rule us because they rule our currency, right? So, um, you know, the thing that excites me the most about crypto is exactly that. It's, it's, it's not even about overthrowing boomer elites. It's just, it's bypassing them, right? It's like, you can't control us if we don't care about your currency. Like, I mean, 99% of my money is in crypto. Like, I have very little faith in the short-term and long-term future of the US dollar. <laughs> like, none, Right. And if they don't have, if the Federal Reserve doesn't have the stronghold, the state is only powerful because of the dollar, right? So for me, it's not, you know, I used to think that it would like, we'd have this revolution and it might be this like crazy, you know, like shift. I used to be much more cynical that it would be like very, very bad. And now the way I'm seeing it is that the boomer elite are just ruining their currency and everyone's economic situation anyway, because there's so short termism about it, right? They're just trying to stay in power. And the young people are being radicalized, not because they're going to learn about the Federal Reserve. Like I spent a bunch of time when I was at university studying Austrian economics. Like I come from this mindset of being like, you know, like fuck the Fed, like all of this stuff. Um, but the young people, like they don't even need to, they're not reading Mises or like, you know, they, they, don't, they don't need to go in and learn that. They're becoming Austrian economic, uh, economists just by nature because they're seeing what's happening a little bit. But I am, I am actually very uh, um, heartened by how apolitical crypto is. It's not like everyone's like, you know, we, we care about Republicans and Democrats. It's just like, we have these tools and we want these tools. And, and Galen from Urban has this amazing quote, which is give people the tools and let them organize themselves. How can the U.S. government provide an infrastructure for 330 million people? It's so ridiculous. You could without the internet when people didn't know about what else was going on in the world. But the cool thing about crypto is that we want to give people the tools to self-organize into whatever structures that they want. It's like I, I imagine a future where we can have like city DAOs and you know, different economic, if people want to experiment with different economic systems, they should be allowed to. Um, so I think it's just going to bypass it. Like, I think that the state is going to become like what happened with the Catholic church. The Catholic church at one point told us everybody what to do. Right. And, and, and still now we can't imagine a world, but like, we didn't, we don't really imagine, like the state doesn't have a stronghold on us, but as their power and, and the dollar and the younger generation comes up, I think they're just going to become weaker and weaker and weaker until it's going to kind of be like the UK monarchy, right? It's like, I don't really care what the queen says on a day-to-day -day basis. She's not going to like, she can't execute me anymore. Um, but the young people are just going to be like, what? we don't care what Elizabeth Warren says, you know, like who cares? And, uh, and I find that I'm, I'm very excited by that. I'm very excited. Right on. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, you know, blockchains and smart contracts kind of are govern governments in a way. They are kind of replacement gover governmental technology. So I, I see where you're going with that. So I guess you're not as bearish on the social outcomes as you possibly once were. Uh, the idea of this be possibly becoming kind of co-opted co or controlled by the elites. You're not worried about that so much. I think, well, that article was kind of like a sardonic commentary after yeah. the 2020 election. And the reason why I was writing that was that I was like this, the original title of the article, which was meant to go in the spectator, except they didn't allow me to print it was that the road that progresses were taking us down. So the idea was like, if we keep going down this route, this is what it's going to look like. So that was the context of that piece. It's not what I want to happen. Um, you know, I think there was one bit in the article. I was like, you know, you have to cross the, you have to cross the, you have to you go on the arc to cross climate change. Like Kamala Harris and AOC are there, like just checking if you've ever recycled, you know, like I was like imagining this dystopian future. Um, but, you know, the, I mean, there's a lot of crypto stuff, which I find extremely cringe. But at the same time, it's like, you know, I, 
I, I came into this stuff, you know, my, you know, somewhat libertarian in nature because I had such negative experiences with the state at such a young age from going through the welfare system with my mother um, that it, you know, very much radicalized me. But it's like, the thing is like, even the stuff that I find cringe, like, like there was this big party in Vegas last weekend, like this after party NFT event. And I was like, I'm not going to go. Like, I don't care because it's going to bring more adoption to the space. Like I used to be a bit more like, no, it should all be people who like understand Austrian economics. Like, but I was like, no, like I just want there to be a lot of adoption because they're not going to care. Like people don't care about politics or philosophy. If you want widespread adoption of crypto, we've got to hook people in with status and, you know, things that play to the things that they already want. And it'll only serve me as someone who thinks about it more philosophically in the long run. Right. Yeah, totally. I hear all of that. And I think you own a CryptoPunk, is that right? So do you think that there are going to be these kind of high visibility marquee brands, if you will, that retain value over the long term? Like, are CryptoPunks going to be super valuable in 10 years, 20 years, 100 years? Is that what you think or what? Uh, where is it? Well, I bought, I, I mean, I have a bunch of, uh, of NFTs. I'm, you know, I, not loads. I, I, I actually, in the whole crypto stuff, like, I haven't got, even though I have a crypto fund, crypto turds and some stuff, like, I definitely am not following NF, NFTs that deeply. It's just not something I'm like as philosophically interested in. Plus, I've been not been very online for the last year, which has been the real NFT time. But I bought, I bought the CryptoPunk. Um, I think that project is cool. There's something about it being like at least somewhat OG in the in yeah. the NFT state. Also, I just liked it because like we were in Monte. My ex boyfriend and I were in Monte Carlo, and I was like smoking a cigarette on the terrace, and this like CryptoPunk came up that like looked exactly like me, and I was just like, yeah, we should just buy this. And like we're kind of stoned, we thought it was funny. So it wasn't like some like philosophical idea okay um, and i bought the crypto toads because i thought they were funny too but i also bought like the the funks you know rider rips's project which like everyone like you know aggressively thinks is negative to crypto parts like i just on that stuff i'm 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 you know at the core of it i'm still like a 13 year old reddit boy uh, in terms of taste um so yeah it, it wasn't some deep philosophical stuff like squiggle down and stuff when it's like eight hundred thousand dollars for a squiggle like you really lost me there like, i just like can't <laughs> right right <laughs> well, uh, what about milady do you own a milady I mean, I, you know, I just, I, I've, I've been so offline and then like the, the, the Tiro guys, uh, uh, killed me on the Milady stuff. And yeah, the, the, was it Romalia, the website? I was like, this is cool. I mean, this has got a bit more of like the cypherpunk mentality, which I really appreciate. Um, like all this kind of NFT people like raising venture funds. I'm like, it's kind of lame. Like, <laughs> yeah. Something in the spirit of crypto, right? Like, um, but again, for the sake of long-term adoption, I don't mind. Like I, you know, it's, it's, I've become less, um, uh, uh, I've been become less binary on like it having to be like a philosophical fit. Right. Right. Okay. Interesting. Very interesting perspective on, on NFTs. Uh, you mentioned, or I mentioned, uh, Miladies. So the Romelia collective is on Urbit. That kind of brings us to another topic I wanted to ask you about. Um, what do you think is the most, what, what is the currently the most interesting and exciting emerging, emerging technology and why is it Urbit? <laughs> well, I, you're saying this is the right person because I am an advisor for Urbit. I have been since 2015. I think it's like me and Joey Crew from Pantera and maybe a couple of others. Um, but the reason why I got interested in Urbit in the first place was one of the same reasons why I actually got interested in Augur, which is if you look at crypto, there aren't many things actually, there are not many people actually trying to build decentralized products, right? Um, not philosophically and not technically either. Um, and if you're building like a somewhat decentralized product on a centralized stack, I mean, it's not very ambitious. And it's in a, in a, in a future which is going, seems to be going towards more censorship. It's not censorship resistant either. And the genius of Curtis Yarvin is that he picked this up very early. Like he started building early, like 12, 13 years ago, like a long time ago. 
Um, and I think it's because he's like one of the first people to experience censorship. So like he realized like we've got to think about this very philosophically. And the thing about Urban is you won't, people won't, they don't, they won't get it until they need it. And I think, I think, you know, people go like, why do you need a decentralized Slack? Why do you need decentralized chat? And it's because we're, we're going towards needing these things, but like maybe the current stuff isn't, you know, too bad that people want to make people move over. And, you know, Urban has its own issues in terms of like UX and stuff to handle to like be more user friendly and they're, they're working on that. But philosophically, they've built something genuinely censorship resistant and they've thought about it like all the way down, like right to the, you know, the, they build their own operating system. Like that is a huge, you know, technical feat. Um, so the only truly decentralized project in my mind, I mean, there's probably others, but like that thought about it at that level is Urbit. So if you care about crypto, you should want Urbit to succeed because if we're going like, who knows what happens in the midterms and 2024, like, who knows, like with twin Twitter, like I've been suspended off Twitter twice for such bullshit. We might really, really need Urbit. Like we, I also think we might really, really need Augur um, because they are truly people trying to think about, you know, decentralized prediction art markets and decentralized, you know, a social suite, decentralized tools. What What is the name of the group you were just saying? Orga? I, I, I'm not familiar. Augur was cool because it was like a very, it was like the first ICO, the first Ethereum ICO that was building decentralized prediction markets. So doing like betting and gambling and like Joey Krug, who was my old roommate at the time, my ex-boyfriend also worked there. So like I got, you know, I, one of the reasons why I found Augur very interesting is an overlap, I think, with people who like both Augur and Urbit was that, you know, prediction markets and gambling, like the there are already stuff that, I mean, it's weird for me because gambling is not illegal in, in the UK, but it's illegal here. Like, I'm like, why can't I just bet on shit? Right? Oh, oh, like, oh, yeah. You're saying, you're, you're saying auger. Sorry. You know, I actually lived in Britain for, I lived in Britain for five years, you know, but I still can't hear certain things. Sorry about that. No, no, it's all right. Auger. Yeah. So yeah. Right. Yeah. Auger. Yes. Auger. So, you know, you, you, in England, you can gamble and I don't gamble. Like actually, ironically, because I am in Vegas right now, but like, I'm not like, a huge gambler, but I do love betting on politics. So I bet it a lot during all the elections. And, and I'm like, this is ridiculous. Like I have to go and predict it, which is basically run by like, I know some sort of intelligence agency and it's like wisdom of a crowd, like give to the democratic party or something. And like, my limit is like $800. I'm like, I don't want, this is unfair. So like things like Augur and, you know, other people trying to build decentralized prediction markets were an interesting use of crypto because they're trying to bypass, they're trying to build decentralized products and bypass us regulation. Right. Or like to create other optionality. And um, yeah, I thought that was, that was a very, that was a very interesting product, but too early, you know, right. like just too early. Does your history of politics betting have a positive ROI? You know, it, people don't understand uh, p- political betting because when I was, I put all my, I got into the nature of like putting my predictions, making my predictions public. And before 2020, I was like, I'm buying all the like, yes, Trump shares, right? And then when Trump lost, they were like, ha oh, ha, like you lost money. I'm like, no, you idiot. The cool thing about this stuff is that the way that, you know, like the betting companies like work out how much to sell these things for is, you know, look at the polls and the polls are ridiculous. It's like on the day of like the election, the fucking incumbent president is like 7%. It's like, it's so ridiculously underpriced. You could buy it on the day of the election. You could buy that yes from like seven, seven cents. I think it was like 18 cents actually. And sell it like one day when he was, when some of the results kind of came in and everyone's models were off. Like we were like selling it for like 73 cents a share, right? So you're just like basically just trading out. It's, it's, it's not a binary thing. It's not like you're like waiting. So I was like, Trump is massively undervalued right now because all the polls are wrong. All the polls are run by like democratically led you know, like, AB, like ABC News owns 538 and everyone's like, why does Nate Silver say XYZ? It's like, well, you know, his boss, no, he's like, he's owned by Disney. It's like Bob Iger, like he was going to be a Democratic presidential nominee, you know? So it's like, you just can't trust any of this. So you just want to bet against the polls. 
So I better guess. And the other thing I made money on, which was so ridiculous, is that Biden was not in the running for being a Democratic um, representative. He was not. He was massively undervalued for that. Even he was lower than Pete Buttigieg at the time. So I also bought into to Biden doing that. So I just bet against the news. Um, yeah, I really, I, I, I really, I really enjoyed 2020 and 2019 for that. It was fun. Okay, nice, nice. Um, so at, going back to Urban, it sounds like your mental model of how Urban wins is basically that. Uh, increasingly, people will find that they need it more and more over time. That's kind of how you see Urbit growing and winning in the long run. People are going to realize that you can't have like like everyone's like, why did Twitter do this? Like, why did Robinhood do this? It's like, well, they're like owned by like you know big funds that are like totally t- you know work very closely with the state. Like, they don't have a choice. It's not like Jack Dorsey, like the Robinhood CEO, is just there being like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to fuck over our users. Like, they're not. They're probably like. We're like quite cool people, but you don't have a choice unless the thing is actually decentralized. Right. Like you have to like you have shareholders, you have you know you work with regulatory opposite um, you know groups. And the thing about Urban is they built from the very beginning protection from having to do that. And I think that that's going to make it very interesting because people are going to realize over time that as the state you know loses their stronghold with the dollar, I imagine they're going to increase their stronghold on a lot more other things. Like in my mind, America is like slowly becoming North Korea. Like you say this to Americans, they like hate you for saying this, but it's like ridiculous, right? Like the idea that we live in the land of the free. I mean, we just everyone has to get over this now. Like this is like America used to be the land of the free. It's not the land of the free anymore. And in my in my mind, something like Urban is actually the land of the free because it's not the Curtis or Galen or anyone on the Urban team can like do anything. They're giving you the tools and they're saying. You can do whatever you want. Here are the tools to go organize yourselves. And that philosophically, I think, will catch on more as people realize what the, how bad the alternatives are. Do you believe that Jeffrey Epstein really killed himself? No, Jeffrey Epstein is alive. Oh, for sure. Like He's, he's still alive. Where is he? In uh, Cuba with Tupac and the dinosaurs or what? I have no idea. I have no idea. But the idea that like, here's the thing. My only model of, uh, of like politics is it. I am just so humble about how much I don't know, which is not the average person. The average person is like, well, the news told me this. And I'm like, I mean, come on. Like, it's, you're never going to actually know, like, in a Machiavellian sense, what's happening behind the scenes. And then there are these little things that happen that make no sense, right? And everyone's like, hmm, we have to fit this into the world model that we have that's been given to us by the news. And I'm just like, I have no idea. Like, it seems very clear that Epstein stuff was somewhat playing on a much, much higher level around, like, intelligence agency world, like, who knows, right? That stuff is not going to be easily revealed, right? And, um, you know, is, is Epstein dead or alive? Like, I'm humble enough to know. I, I just don't know. Um, but my guess would be that he's a very important asset for some people and that, you know, like, it's like it's like John McAfee. You think John McAfee killed himself? Like, absolutely no way. You think he's still he's alive? He's such a badass. Well, I hope. If, if there's one person who could convince, who could get out of a Spanish prison and be alive and not even tell his wife or anything. It's fucking John McAfee. That guy is dope. Um, so I, so I, yeah, I agree. I agree yeah. with all of that, but I feel like precisely for those reasons, uh, he would never just stop, you know, uh, acting in, in public. Uh, that that's, it seems like out of character for him. So I, I have a hard time yeah, understanding. You, yeah. If the alternative is prison, right. Then who knows? Like I just, yeah, I don't know. I, all I'm going to say is like on the Epstein McAfee stuff is like, I just don't, like the real humble thing is to be aware that the world, like there's that Michael Hoffman book, what is it called? Um, Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare. Such a good book. But it's like the idea that we understand what's happening at a very top level as like serfs, right? And I think about this, the analogy is when I work at Intel, because you work at Intel, you're like, all the employees like think that we're working towards something and they're like, 
the C-suite are like actually, you know, doing something else. And then the board have like other goals, right? And it's like, there's like some sort of symbiosis between every level. But I didn't really understand this concept of the deep state until I worked in a hundred thousand person organization. And I was like, okay, well, there's actually like, there's actually like a strategy going on that like, no, it's not, it's not efficient for everybody to know the whole strategy, right? You just got to give little people a little part so that they can do the bits that they need to do. And once I realized that, I was like, okay, well, this is how the rest of the world works, right? Because it's actually the most efficient thing is there to be a narrative at every level. So like the stuff about politics, I just, I'm just very humble that I, I just don't know. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. But you don't believe he killed himself. It's one thing to not know things, but you also have to uh, be equally incredulous towards what they, what, what they, what they say is true. <laughs> The thing that really threw me was, do you, did you see the Epstein suicide note on 60 Minutes? I, I forget. Tell me. Yeah, because like, it was somewhat believable, perhaps, maybe. I probably like, you know, the guys were asleep and the cameras didn't work. Like, sometimes when I just like tell people outside the US, it was like people outside the US, like, you know, my goddaughter came to visit and I was telling her the Epstein story. As I was telling it, I realized like how ridiculous it was. Like she was, could not, she's like 18, could not stop laughing. But it was really the suicide note that got me. It's like only 60 minutes had the exclusive with the suicide note, which I thought was believable. But the suicide note was like, he written this like jumbled text, like food is bad, like can't shower, like something like that, like time to die or something like this. I was just like, come on. Like you're, it's like we only 60 minutes has this like suicide note that like comes from an extremely smart man who'd been on the phone to his like girlfriend the day before. And like, I don't know, it, it, it it makes it makes no sense. The uh, the uh, elite circles move in in interest in interesting ways. Right, no right, idea. all right. I love it, love it. So on this podcast, we sometimes play a little game called Based or Cringe. I'm going to yeah. give you a concept, a topic, a person, a theme, and I don't want to hear your nuanced, you know, interesting, sophisticated takes. I want to hear just yes or no, up or down, based or cringe. Based meaning yes, cringe meaning no. Essentially. So, yeah. uh, are you ready? Yeah. So you studied philosophy at UCL. Uh, what do you make of the philosophy of Nick Land, based or cringe? Based. All right. Anything to say about Nick Land or just keep You just told me not to add nuance, so I was trying not to add nuance. I, I know, then I, always, I know that I always break my own rule. I want to know what uh, people think. <laughs> well, I read a lot of his stuff like a while back, and I was like, oh, it's accelerationism stuff is like nihilistic. And now I'm just like, nah. Like I, want, I, I understand the minds. It's not actually nihilistic. I just want to get to the next thing now. You know, okay. and I used, okay. to, I used to be a little bit more naive about that. Okay. Okay. How about the now common practice or fashion of polyamory? Cringe. Cringe. How about Martin Shkreli, AKA Pharma Bro? Based. <laughs> Based. How about the Bay Area meme slash sociology of rationalism? Oh, extremely cringe. Say more about that. I mean... Oh. Uh, you know, I gave a talk at a rash, like one of the first EA global, you know, it was very much involved with the rationalist, rationalist groups. I gave a talk about the value of rationality. I mean, you just heard my pitch about epistemological anarchism. Like if you, I basically think that the rationalist muse movement was like a support group for like people on the spectrum in Berkeley. That's my view. <laughs> okay. Um, how about Billie Eilish? Oh, cringe. Yeah. Cringe. Mm -hmm. Um, how about Jeremy Bentham? Yeah, I mean, he's based. I mean, his dead body is like in our university. I thought it was so cool. Yes, I was like that. I, I used to walk past. I think they like close it now. Like uh, even UCL, which was like one of the, the first free thinking university in England, like, came after Oxford and Cambridge, allowed women to come in, set up by three philosophers. Like even now that's becoming work. And apparently they were like hiding his body because they thought it was offensive or something. I was like, that literally was his dying request. 
And I thought it was so cool to like walk past this like stuffed corpse every day when I went to the philosophy department. I was like, what a dude. <laughs> Would you sit with him and spend time with his dead body kind of meditating or reflecting? And, you know, I, I, I have to be extremely honest. I, I barely attended university. So no, um, but, uh, but the times when I did go in to do my exams, I definitely did say hi to him. So you were cutting class a lot. What were you uh, doing when you were cutting class? Running my toy store. So I put all my lectures, I focus very much on epistemology and I put all my lectures on a Thursday. Um, so that I would only miss one day of running the toy store, but I still like finished and got my degree. Like, I think it's such a, people always presume I must've dropped out or did something, but I did the whole, I did the whole time. I just, I, I was already so interested in philosophy. I didn't need to go to the class. I was like reading it all. Yeah. Actually in the toy store, the window of our toy shop just had teddy bears reading like Heidegger and stuff. So. <laughs> okay. Nice. Okay. I got distracted. Uh, wet brain. Oh, uh, based. Based. I love this. All right. And finally, uh, Elizabeth Holmes. Oh, it's tricky. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I actually, I, I don't, I don't know. I'm going to side with cringe because when I read the stuff in the court case with the text messages and all that stuff, I was like, nah, I kind of thought you were cool and like this stronghold, but like she not apologized, but like it's weird now. Like Shukrali is cool to me because like, He's consistent and he actually didn't do anything bad. He didn't do anything that Farmer isn't doing the whole time anyway. Me and George Hotz and a bunch of friends actually protested outside Twitter when Shukali got banned. Um, but uh, yeah, Elizabeth Holmes, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not clear. I, and to be honest, I didn't follow it so deeply because I wasn't. Okay, fair enough. I yeah, I have, I, have, I have a soft spot in my heart for Elizabeth Holmes. Uh, I think she probably is guilty of fraud, but um, I'd like her. And I think she, I just think, I mean, I think she's kind of an interesting example of, uh, what you were saying earlier in the conversation about uh, believing that you can basically uh, bend physics to your will. Uh, I think she kind of believed that and that's pretty based. Yeah. I also think that she's just a scapegoat. Like the idea that it could all be her fault. Right. Um, and the same thing for Shikrali and stuff like that. Like we have to have these like scapegoats that we like sacrifice, like and, like the morally bad people in the world. Um, but what she did compared to like hundreds of other companies that exist on a day-to-day -day basis is like not any better or any worse. If anything, I, she should have just never apologized. I mean, like, fuck you. And I'd be like, that's cool. What did you write your, so that's the end of that game. Thank you. What, what did you write your undergrad dissertation about? I was curious. Well, I did two. You're only meant to do one, but I decided to submit two. And I was very obviously interested in political philosophy. And my main university dissertation was called justifying a minimal state. So it was like, you know, uh, Nozick and, and it, it was a lot of Austrian economics, but basically just, you know, arguing very much that we should have a minimal state. So like, I, it really was a great feeder for me to enter the Bay area. Cause like I'd come from a very libertarian mindset when I'd been at university, but the other um, paper that I also submitted was on Plato and love. It's like focusing on Plato's symposium. Um, because I, I always had like these two things in my mind. Like I can't be close political without being creative. Like even though you weren't meant to do two dissertations, I did two anyway. Cause I just like, I wanted to write about political philosophy, but I love like reading about all the platonic ideas of love. Like he has like seven different types. And I, I just wanted to do a second essay. Um, so, so yeah, two, I did two. Right. So I noticed that love is something you've written about in some of your past essays. I, something caught my eye where you said that love destroys people like alcohol destroys people. But then later in the essay, you seem to also kind of say that maybe it is possible to love without being destroyed. So which one is it? Uh, I, well, I think in that essay I was saying, like, one of the things I found interesting is that when I'm, uh, like, really close with someone, and, and, like, actually, my friend said this before, she, I said, how do you know you're in love with someone? She said, because I'm no longer afraid, which I really liked. Um, and, you know, 
maybe is it possible for love to not destroy you? I mean, eventually, right? Because like, even if you love someone, they're going to die. Like it's it's uh, it's uh, there's always a sense of loss eventually. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It's not like uh, I, it's something I'm still trying to figure out. It's it's um, fair enough. So that's why I that's why I did the essay. That's why I did the essay on Plato because uh, like a. My favorite quote actually about love is from Ayn Rand, which is surprising, but she wrote a quote, which is in the fountainhead says, um, I, how can you say I love you until you know what the I is? And I love that quote because I think most people who go into relationships, they go into it because they need somebody else, right? To like balance them out. And, um, the best relationships I know, like I love Jim and his wife and some other older, older friends that I have, like they're two very individualistic people who have this like shared experience, like maybe in those situations, they don't have to get burned. Um, nice. Yeah. I don't. Yeah, sure. Fair enough. Interesting. I'm just curious. You mentioned that you, in your toy store, you had the toys in the front, uh, reading Heidegger. So I'm curious what you've learned from Heidegger. Do you agree with Heidegger's theory of technology where modern technology is this like, uh, all consuming cybernetic system that wants to entrap, uh, human being and turn it into objects to be to be manipulated do you agree or disagree well it's an uh, interesting time to ask me because i've gone from like the transhumanism arc i've gone through the transhumanism to ted kaczynski arc very quickly <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's like, is that like, right when i first came to san francisco i gave all of these talks about transhumanism right like i was actually what i was known for when i came to the right. bay it's like I'd, I'd run this group in berlin called berlin singularity where we talked about like longevity, you know, extreme life extension. I, I, um, I was working with like David Pierce set up a, the philosopher set up a neuroethics group. And I was working with him about how do we think about like human enhancement and very technology focused. And the more I got into this space and the more my world model kind of like evolved, I become much, much, um, you know, I, Heideggerian, like perhaps not, if you, I agree with almost everything in the Unabomber manifesto, like it's like he's a genius. I think because it's I don't who knows if he actually sent the mail bombs, but you know, very very smart guy who saw a lot about what would happen in, in the future. But uh, I I don't know who actually said this originally because Jesse mentioned it on the podcast I did with him. But it's about like how te- every piece of technology, maybe it was Marshall McLuhan, but like every medium of technology is a is an amputation of of the human, right? Like yeah, you prosthesis, know, you to- a prosthesis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, okay, is that McLuhan who yeah. said that? Okay, cool. So I do remember it correctly. So he was, you know, and I get that now, right? Like you used to be able to like follow a map and now you need Google maps. You used to be able to do all these things. Like we're outsourcing it all. And I have become more human centered. Now I do still want there to be, uh, you know, life. I I care very much about the, like, I've cared about the longevity space since I was a teenager. Um, So I do want, uh, you know, and I but I don't think of that as transhumanism necessarily as technology. Like even the founding fathers would want our health to be better. And that technology is the best way to improve these things. But the idea, like actually Kevin Kelly's views and what technology wants are very interesting because he thinks of technology as like other kingdom of life, right? And that we're like building this technium. Um, and I found that interesting because then, you know, people who are interacting with this need to be more philosophical and like need to be more ethical in how they think about it because it's much more powerful as how it shapes society. So I don't want to just go live in a cabin. I don't, I don't actually, just, I mean, I sometimes I do, <laughs> but like, I do think it's important that people who are in these spaces come at it also who value the human spirit, right? Like I do want to enhance humans, but I don't want us to lose our, you know, um, our, uh, like people are not getting happier with these things. Right. Interesting. That's very interesting how you describe your path from transhumanist to, to Kaczynskiite. Uh, that, that's a major, that's a major transformation. It seems. Yeah. I mean, I, I still want, I, 
I'm somewhere in the middle of both. Like maybe that just makes me an NPC, but like I do want some of the end goals of, of transhumanism in terms of I do want people to be happier. But like the I so here's something that I take away. Like the idea that we should just change, like I mean, David Pierce sometimes goes towards negative utilitarianism, which is definitely not. I don't I hate any type of utilitarianism. But oh, but you said idea, Jeremy Bentham is based. Jeremy Bentham is basically put his dead body in a thing, but he did ruin philosophy with utilitarianism. Like the idea that we have like this like toddler socialist math, like calculate like yeah. happiness is so ridiculous to me. You were saying utilitarianism is cringe. The David Pearson, the idea that we want to change people's hedonic set points, right? So that they don't experience extreme suffering. Now, there's a great book, I think it's called like, The Genius of Madness, um, right? Which is like, it's not the neurotypical people who do great things in this world. If we just knocked out all of mental health issues or like, change like knocked out on a gene level, like any kind of uh, neurodiversity, it'd be very bad, right? Um, so understanding the value of like this kind of diversity and, you know, the people who experience the lowest lows experience the highest highs. Like everyone's like, Kanye's gone crazy. I'm like, no, Kanye's a genius. Like there's a reason he can do the things he can do and have that power. Um, and uh, Alexander the Great was probably bipolar and like, you know, Virginia Woolf, like do I want them to like be accountants? Like not really, you've got to think about all this stuff, the transhumanist stuff about like changing hedonic set points. You just got to calculate in like what the second order effects would be if we try to over-optimize for things, which is what people are like, this is the thing I hate about Silicon Valley. Like when you go to conferences now, people, one of the opening questions you get is like, what are you optimizing for? And I'm like, oh, I hate it, you know? Yeah, I said recently- <laughs> Everything has to be overly optimized for like something. Like totally. a lot of nature is optimizing for the right reasons. Like nature is very smart goals and planning and optimization. It's very middle of the bell curve. Like the truly power, the truly powerful have no time for it. You just live. I'm sorry, my argument against the rationalist community, right? Because the people who are really doing exceptional things, they might be thinking about thinking, but they're not trying to like, I don't know, confine it into some sort of system. Um, and I, I did want, I'll say one thing I did get very strongly from the rationalist community, which I am very grateful for is that, they really taught me about Bayesian epistemology, which I didn't do a lot in university, but understanding stuff in terms of probabilities and your priors and adding a probability to it to be able to update later is a very good way of like thinking through arguments. And I am very grateful actually to, I got that from the people who are involved at CIFAR. So, um, but, but to only index on that would be ridiculous, mm, right? right. Um, so I use that when I need to, but the rest of the time I'm trying to be like fair argument. Hell yeah. I like it. So Bayes rule is based, Kanye is based, but not too much basically. Yeah. I would love to learn a little bit more about, you know, what you find most interesting right now. What, how are you spending your time? What are you working on right now? Yeah. Uh, so I stopped working at Intel in June, 2020. I mean, yeah, June, 2020. And my dad got sick and he passed away. I don't like, like I actually don't like the term passed away. I feel like people who just like force you to say it. Like my father died in January, 2021. And I said to myself, you know what? I, I, I had to work a lot since I was 16 because I had to financially provide for my family. And my dad had like a lot of carers and health and stuff. So I suddenly was like, okay, well I have surplus money now and I have like the freedom of not caring, like caring full time for somebody. So I'm going to take a year off and I'm not going to allow anyone to pay me to do anything. I'm just going to see where my mind goes in terms of my own interests. And it's a very interesting thought experiment to give to yourself because who, who were, who are you without the world telling you who you should be? Right. Like, who are you if you remove the internet, remove social media and just like say, like, I'm just going to go research stuff. I spent all of last year just traveling, trying to not be online that much and just see where my mind took me in terms of interest. 
And, um, you know, I, I always go back to the same things, which is like science and epistemology. Like they always just come back to them. And I was collecting all my articles from the last few years. Like they all have the same theme. And I was like, okay, well, if you reread Fair Arbin, what could I do with the next few years of my life that could contribute towards the acceleration of science and things that I care about? And one of the things I picked up on was I think some of the views in, around like infectious diseases are wrong. So they had a lot of hype right now because of COVID. But, you know, I worked with a virologist before viruses were even cool. Like four or five years ago when I was in London, I worked with a virologist to get like a blueprint of like every antibody I had to like look at my disease, like what diseases I've been exposed to. Because there's a lot of correlation between being exposed to endemic, like diseases that are now endemic with like later issues in life. So there was a paper that came out that, you know, really made the rounds about two months ago about how Epstein-Barr virus, which is monoglandular fever, like has a very strong link to multiple sclerosis later in life. And um, there's this one uh, uh, evolutionary biologist called Paul Ewald that I love. And he writes, he's been saying for a long time, like cancers and a lot of this stuff seems to be coming from earlier exposures, exposures to pathogens. And I've been interested in toxoplasmosis. So toxoplasmosis, have you heard of it? It's like the, it's like the parasite that you get from cats. And that's where the crazy cat lady um, uh, uh, you know, uh, idea came from. And my mom is schizophrenic and has spent all her time looking after cats. So I was always convinced when I was younger that she had toxoplasmosis-induced schizophrenia. And the more I started looking at toxoplasmosis last year, the more I was like, this is insane. Like, I've, you know, up to two thirds of people like have this parasite in their brain, which is like latent, which is basically changing their everyday behavior. Right. And now I think of my mind, like my, like my agency is the in-between of like pathogen damage. Um, and then the more you go look at this stuff, if you look at breast cancer tissue samples, it's, a, it's more specifically significant that they have um, EBV exposure then even genetics. And everyone thinks of cancer as being very genetically focused. So the more I started looking at that, the more I'm, and I, I'm taking the fair argument approach, which is that we seem to be wrong about how we think about infectious diseases and how they affect the brain. Alzheimer's could be, a, there's a lot of research that says that Alzheimer's could be a prion. It could be coming from prions and like misfolded proteins, which is why surgeons and people who are around people who have Alzheimer's, it might be getting it by, by like contagiously. Like it's so insane. So, and if this is correct, then science is going in the wrong direction. I'm not in the wrong direction, but we're at least overlooking it slightly. So for the last few months, I've just been working on neuroimmunology. I'm setting up this like research foundation, not to do the research myself, but I realized that this is an overlooked uh, area of science that what I'm doing right now is I'm getting researchers to write an explicit list of uh, like people who already you know, think direction this way, an explicit list of what we would like people to work on. And I'm putting like a bounty price. Like we're waiting like how, how valuable this research would be. I'm just going to put it out as a research foundation saying like, you want $200,000, we want this data. Um, and I think it'll just be very interesting to bring that, um, like if, if, if it's, even if it's, even if it's like Paul Ewald thinks that like 80% of cancer comes from infectious diseases, even if it's 10%, that's huge, right? So I just want to fund that. So I've really been working on that for, for like the last six months or so. I'm going to launch the foundation in, in, in mid, mid-May. Fascinating. So I'm curious how you think about the challenges of designing research funding. What does Firebend teach you about optimizing or creating a pluralistic, anarchistic kind of research design context or environment? Yeah, it's actually really funny because I have a book here. Well, I can't see it, but it's like um, uh, the methodology of scientific research programs. It's not actually Fire Arben. It's uh, Imre, is it Imre Lakatos? It's like the guy who, who so Fire Arben's Against Method was actually a dialogue with, with another guy and this other guy has written all this stuff about design. I spent a lot of time reading about designing uh, scientific funding vehicles. And one of the reasons why I've gone to this bounty approach is there's two things. One, when you go and try and raise money for like a foundation, like people pitch me for nonprofits all the time. I'm like, where is this money going? 
Actually, my one of my best friends from university runs a company that just audits charities, right? And like they're pretty bad. Like it's just like goes towards like you know bureaucracy. So one of the reasons why I've thought about it as this model of like just pricing it as bounties is that not only can someone invest into the give money to the research foundation, but it's a very you know accountable thing. Like you can say like I want to fund this one research area, and it's like here's a breakdown of the cost, and this is where the money is going to go. I'm going to do this as a bounty, and this is how valuable it is to the space. So I'm trying to add transparency. To this, to, to this, and have it more of like a software model because people who I want to raise from, like the people who are who've made money from crypto, like they think like this. We think very systematically. That's what got us interested in things like the blockchain. So you can't just go around and be like, we want to raise millions of dollars for this like secret nonprofit. We're not going to tell you where the money goes. I want it to be very, very clear. I want it to be there to be you know very specific points we want researchers to go out and do. And the other thing doesn't have to be in the U.S. The cost to do research is ex- extremely expensive in the U.S. There's a lot of bureaucracy here. If there's 20 kids in India who want to go dissect mice for me to like understand how linoleic acid plays in toxoplasmosis, I'll give them the best funding of their lives. And the bounty model is just what we're starting with. I think we're going to learn from that as well. And again, like uh, we're asking for very specific data, um, very specific questions. And then how they how the people go about it might surprise us, right? And that's the fair argument approach. I'm not saying like you have to do it a certain way or you have to do this research. Um, I found crazy research recently by like reading stuff that's outside the U.S., um, then I have to like translate it, which is hard, but, uh, but yeah, no, um, I mean, I'm definitely going to try. Fascinating. Okay. So you think there are a lot of opportunities in, uh, neuroimmunology and you think there are these kind of alternative theories of, of disease that are systematically neglected and you want to build a, a research organization that basically throws funding in a, in a structure, in a kind of structured anarchistic way, uh, to, yeah optimize for research on, on these uh, neglected areas. Anything else you're working on or uh, things that you're particularly interested in at the moment? It's like, I, I can never do one thing, <laughs> right? Like I, I just can't, like I, if I, if I only work on the neuroimmunology stuff, like I have this, like my, I mean, you can't see my apartment, you can kind of see my apartment, but my apartment is insane, right? Like it's like my art project in here and I have an art studio downstairs, like I paint. So it's like, I have this creative side and I have to, have it, I have to do stuff. So one of the other goals I have, so you have this problem, which is that I think there are different areas of science, which aren't like, um, that aren't in the right structure to get the information that I would like to learn about. The other problem is that we have a massive crisis in self-efficacy. It's like people don't believe that they can achieve things. And I've thought about this a lot. I'm like, how do we make people realize their own power, right? Like how do we make people be more ambitious? Like where are all the John Galt's of this world? You know, there's a few. Um, like, like I don't think Elon Musk has insecurity issues when he goes and taps into a new industry. Like he thinks of it as like a game. And when you talk to people, they're like, well, this expert says this, or like, I don't have this skill, like, blah, blah, blah. And I, I want to find a way, especially with the younger generations, to instill a higher level of self-efficacy in them. So one of the projects I've been working on for like the last, it's like two years now because it's been so complicated, is that we, I got one of my favorite authors, who I won't name because he's been writing under a pseudonym, but uh, we've rewritten Atlas Shrugged as a TV series. So it's like a 13 episode, one hour each, and it's very well done. Like the movies not do it justice. I don't think it works as a movie because it's very long text. It's like a very sexy Mad Men style version of Atlas Shrugged. It's very well done. And the reason why I want this thing to work is that I want young people to watch this TV show and be like, I want to be like John Galt or Hank Reardon or Dagny Taggart, right? I don't want to just be on TikTok being like, I want to be like Kim Kardashian. The way that we inspire the next generation is not by telling them or like writing long articles about how they need to have self-efficacy. We need to give them examples so you think about it, like what brought more people into working in technology. I don't think it was like Mark Andreessen's blog post. It was like 
the social network, the movie, because you just see this nerdy kid gets, makes money and gets laid. And then everyone's like, shit, I should go into this industry. So I want to create these archetypes, which is what Iron Rand was doing, that young people will want to look up to in a very sexy, like attractive way. So I've been working on that for a long time, but the rights and the estate, like, it's been so complicated. And the joke is that I'm like, if it gets, it takes any longer, I'm just going to create a documentary about me trying to make Atlas Rock the TV series. It'll just be like the analogous story anyway. Cause like I'll be Daddy Taggart trying to make it. <laughs> but it's like, fine. It's like, I know I've been, something's definitely going to happen, but yeah, I've been, I've been working on that for like over a year and a half now. Wow. Okay. That's a fascinating idea. Well, hopefully, hopefully some Netflix executive is watching this and, uh, we'll hit oh, you I'm up. not putting it on Netflix. No, oh, like if okay. you, even someone like that, they would like edit it. Right. It's like, you have to have full control. Like Ayn Rand would not want it to be on Netflix. Okay. Interesting. So then how do you, I mean, that's an interesting larger kind of meta question. How, how do you think about like cultural uh, distribution then? How do you think about me- independent media and, you know, do you think that th- there is this kind of necessity for radical individuals and creators and intellectuals to really try to stay outside of the system as much as possible, have your own distribution totally independent on all things? Or how do you think about that? Uh, well, you know, I think you have to you have to weigh up between you want a lot of distribution because you want to have the largest impact, but you also don't want to have to change. Like, for instance, I mean, it's such a hilarious example, but you know, most of Hollywood is you know under like the Writers Guild, like unions and stuff. I can't be a union production about the shrug. It's so, right. It's like it's ridiculous. Right. Take it to Netflix. It like censored the fuck out of it. I mean, none of there's anything bad, but like even the word out of shrug, you take it through Hollywood. Like most people haven't read it. Um, and they still criticize it because they have an idea of what they think it's about. Um, but it's actually about a female protagonist. It's actually a very, uh, it's a very li- yeah. liberal story if you think about it. And we really yeah. have focus on that as a, as a unbelievable female protagonist story. Uh, she's the Hillary Clinton of the industrial age. Um, but, uh, but uh, um, you know, in terms of distribution, like, there are new platforms coming up um, and there are things that are going to be more censorship resistant. But I'm just very ambitious. Like I'm like, money goes a long way. So when I'm like trying to fundraise for Alice Shrud and everyone's like, how are you going to distribute it? My ideas are very big. I want the first episode to, sh- to show for free in like every AMC in America. I'm like, oh yeah, you don't want to watch Atlas Shrugged? It's for free in every local cinema. And I've just a huge amount in my, you know, it's going to cost millions of dollars or tens of millions of dollars. But like, that's the level that I'm thinking. I'm like, I will, I will beat everyone's prior, you know, biases of this of this book and it's exactly what iran would have wanted she would have wanted something big impactful and creative i'm not going to go like beg a netflix executives like go do it i'm like nah i'll if it however much it costs me i'll raise it because the people who will understand the potential impact of this stuff will realize like how powerful it will be to like do it very well hell yeah okay so 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 basically it sounds like your your meta model is go full independent but then uh get distribution yourself just by getting a lot of money (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, money goes a long way. Like, you, yeah. I, I, I realized how uh, how fickle Hollywood was when, um, you know, you, I mean, especially post COVID, because like a lot of things haven't gone into production, and you talk to different people, and you know, Hollywood has lost a lot of money. And um, yeah, it's. Uh, I, I think if there's any time for anyone to Atlas Shrugged is now. Yeah, that's yeah. that's fascinating. I mean, don't you think also though, money is a weird conformity vector as well? Like, you're right, money goes a long way, but it's kind of gross. It's it's kind of sad, isn't it, when you see like. Uh, someone like raises money and then everyone's like, you know, super interested in that person who just publicly got a lot of money. So I think you're totally right. It's like a very powerful tool to just mobilize a lot of people. But in a way, it's also kind of sad because those people, those are kind of the NPCs, right? Like they'll do whatever money tells them to do kind of. Yeah. uh, But I know that my intentions are good. So in my (laughs) case, I'm like, Atlas Shrug should exist. I want there to be a next generation of builders, you know, uh, and how do you do that? Like, 
I mean, we are already living in Atlas Road. Like when Gavin Newsom came on the news and those trains had been looted, I was crying with laughter. I was like, literally, I mean, Iran must be laughing in her grave. Like, it's so funny. So like, California is the basis of, of Atlas Road right now. It's so funny. So who is the most based hot Hollywood actress who would have to play Dagny Taggart? Oh, I've been thinking about this a lot. And here's the thing. There's, you know, I, as I've navigated trying to do this, um, there's a lot of people who, you know, are actually, and I don't really like the word base so much because it has its own connotations, but people who, you know, have been, uh, you know, it's not radicalized, but like you see what happened over the last few years and been like, wait, what is happening? Like, they, I care about California. I don't want Gavin Newsom to like drive the state into the, into the fiery death it's going to go into. Um, so trying to people, people pick up on people's political views. And I've been very surprised actually about how many Atlas Shrug fans there are in Hollywood. Like, for instance, I didn't, I didn't know this as I went in, into this, but before Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie got divorced, they were trying to make their own version of Atlas Shrug, but they would play John Gall and Dagny Taggart. And I was like, that is fascinating. <laughs> so there are, I mean, it's an unbelievable book. There's almost like no one that I know who's genuinely actually read the book, which is very long, who doesn't like it. So if, an, if someone in Hollywood is smart, and there are a bunch of smart people in Hollywood, if they've read the book, like, they think it's cool. Um, yeah, it, it, is, it is a weird thing. Like I definitely read every word of that book in high school and I really liked it. And then when I got to college, it was very unfashionable. And I kind of, uh, I kept reading stuff like Mises. I read like a ton of the Austrian economic stuff when I was in undergrad, but I had this distinct memory as a young man that it was like not cool to like that stuff. So, you know, I wanted to get laid and that kind of stuff. So I kind of like was a closet, like Austrian economics guy in college. Uh, but I, I remember it, like there was a strong kind of like social penalty for, uh, like being interested in that stuff. Which is why I want to do the TV show, right? right it's like right. no one's going to read the book. The book is trying to tell young people to read like a 1,300 pages is not going to, it's not like useful. They're like watching TikTok. Right. But making a very sexy TV show that actually isn't like, it's not political or anything. It just has these archetypes of people to look up to. And they are cool and they have amazing love lives and they have amazing stories. I mean, the most powerful character to me in Atlas Shrugged is Lillian Redden. And uh, like these these archetypes of characters are like stop progress or like put a damper on things. Once you see it in this show or in the book, you start to recognize it everywhere. Like Newsom is a classic Randian villain, right? And so is Mark Benioff. All these people, like every time I see them, I'm like, oh, it's you know, it's Ellsworth Tui or whoever. Like I see them, right? So I just want these concepts to go into young people's minds so that they they have a, at least. At least I'm not saying that they have to love Atlas Tribe, but at least I'll add to their spectrum of extremely terrible people to look up to. A few more that are a little different. I'm very interested in this theme also of how to kind of uh, excite and liberate the youth, uh, how, to, how to help people, uh, yeah, especially young adults, kind of see like how much more badass and creative and radical they could be if they just decided to. Do you, in your experience or in your observation, like are there particular interventions you think that work like maybe some more everyday things than like doing a big movie is there something that you can actually tell a kid is there something you can do with a kid or a young adult to shake them and like break 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 the mental shackles you know peter till used to give everyone a hundred thousand dollars drop out of college and if you're smart now you, and you're a young kid you just make that with on with DeFi now so uh you know i think there are ways that just by the nature of like different systems that are emerging will just happen by nature, right? That people are starting to think outside the box because they don't need to go to, you don't need to go to Harvard business school if you've figured out DeFi, right? It's like Harvard business school is not even understanding what's happening in DeFi. Right. Yet, right. So I think 
you know, it's it's the next generation is going to be very interesting because they grew up on the internet. It's like I really only got, I mean, I was on the internet when I was young, but like 15 plus, but I mean, I met a 14 year old the other day who'd been playing with Ethereum for like six years. So, you know, it's a very, it's a very different mindset. Um, but what can you do? I don't know. I think one of the responsibilities of the people who do work in these systems, like in technology or in crypto is to show the young people that we're having fun. This maybe isn't so much like what young people can do, but to go back to the social network analogy, like it works to say like, Hey, if you do these things, you're also going to enjoy your life. And, um, and I think that makes me sad because people make money in tech and they're like living in these minimalist houses, like fasting all the time. I was with my friend Rob Reinhardt the other day, like he's the, he was the founder of Soylent and he lives on this ranch in Malibu and he hosts these big dinners and he came to Las Vegas with his pet piglet. Like he's such a surrealist, like soulful individual. And he's like, enjoys his life. Um, we were talking about how like, you know, the wellness stuff, like people don't eat gluten anymore. Like all of these ideas, like everyone's so restrictive. I think it's our responsibility as people who've like been successful to show that if you do work hard, it is going to be rewarding for you, right? Because I'm like, who do young people look up to? Like, I think Elon Musk is having fun. I think that he had a big change in 2016 and became very fun on the internet. So he showed that like working hard can be fun. But we've got this kind of mindset, you know, this like Sheryl Sandberg, all these people just like, you have to wear a hoodie every day and you have to like be very minimalist. Like it's all about just working. Like, you know, and I want to say, I want to, I think it's very important that we show that it can be extremely fun and rewarding. And that there's beauty. Like there needs to be more, we need to put more beauty in the world to inspire the young generations to not become like nihilists. Like they're going to become nihilists because who are they going to look up to? Like none of us seem like we're having much fun. Hell Especially yeah. not on Twitter. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to kind of synthesize your worldview as I'm getting it in these different pieces in this conversation. And it's interesting because it's it's like you're kind of, you're obviously pro-technology, you're pro, you know, you're, you're a kind of technological progressive in, in a way, but you're also kind of trad, like you're not into polyamory and you're not into, you know, a lot of the stuff that is uh, kind of associated with the so-called transhumanist crowd that maybe you were kind of more associated with in the past. You're, you're more into things like Kaczynski now. I feel like the Rivatez model of the future would be something like should, you know, you do like a, a private charter city or like a private, you know, city DAO with you and your friends. And you basically just select for the most badass, happy, beautiful, ambitious, uh, energetic people uh, go full on into crypto rails and basically just find a way to pretty much exit all currently existing institutions and like build your own kind of somewhat trad based like society, um, on your own outside, outside of the mainstream institutions. Is, is this the kind of stuff that you think about? Is that, is that a, a promising avenue or do you not think in those terms? No, I mean, I mean, this is my exact reason for investing in Praxis, which is, you know, uh, yeah. they're trying to build a city. And the reason why I invested in them, there are different groups who pitched me on charter cities or like cities, right? And the reason why I like the Praxis guys is that they fundamentally understood that it was not about politics. It was not about crypto. It was about culture. The way you get people interested in this stuff is by making it culturally interesting. And the way that they thought about it when they were telling me about, you know, how do we change the self-efficacy of, of young people and how do we make them want more? How do we build the gulch, gulch for the next generation? Isn't going to be like us writing all the value of charter cities, like blah, blah, blah. It's about, you know, putting those concepts in and like creating a funnel for young people to like figure it out on their own and like making that the this other thing look like a better option or, you know, not it's not a rational argument. It has to be downstream from culture. So that's one of the reasons why I have been, you know, some, and I'm, I'm working right now on a, uh, on a magazine for Praxis. Cause like, how do we get young people to um, learn about these concepts? Like, it's like, it's gotta be, a, it's gotta be cultural. So yeah, it's, it's gotta seem fun. It's gotta seem like people you want to go join. And, and, and I love, the thing I love about Praxis is like they throw all these parties, right? 
Uh, and everyone's like, why are they throwing parties? They're a startup. I'm like, no, I think a party is extremely valuable because you say, Look at these people having fun. Like, what are they doing? And that's a great entry point to learn about things. Um, you don't, at least young people aren't going to go read Austrian economics or like, you know, uh, uh, my, my cat who's right here is called Milton, right? Uh, um, and I don't, they don't, they don't want to read free to choose. Um, but uh, but if they go to a party and they're like, what are all these cool people doing? They're like, oh, we're all actually going to go, go work on the city. It's like, well, you know, I want to go join that. I think that's very powerful. Yeah, I went to a Praxis party just last week in Austin. It was cool. It was interesting. It, it was very interesting. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was it was very it was very like when I was when I was there after like 15 minutes, I was kind of like, so are they gonna like try to get me to buy something now? Or are they, you know, what like what's going on here? It was kind of it was kind of weird in a cool way because there was nothing to sell. There was nothing, there was no pitch. There was just like, we're gonna throw on this uh lovely dinner and have an excellent little party. And that's just like that is what we're doing. And I was like, huh, that is actually pretty creative and and pretty outside the box when it comes to like strategies for for building a startup and it was it was really pretty cool well reva thank you so much for hanging out today this is fun thank you for having me hey thank you so much for listening to the podcast you made it all the way to the very end so you must really like the show in that case i would be super grateful if you'd be so kind to leave a review on apple podcasts all you have to do is go to otherlife.co slash review that's otherlife.co forward slash review and it'll send you an Apple podcast. Just leave a review. You can be honest. Tell me what you really think. I'd really appreciate it because it'll help other people find the show. And I'm really trying to grow out the podcast. So thanks for listening. And thank you for leaving a review. I really appreciate it.